currently in our home, we've been having some bedtime issues with our preschoolers. Anyone else, can you relate to that? Issues at bedtime if you have preschoolers? Maybe you don't want to raise your hand. Okay, I'll raise mine. We're, not, we're the only ones, I guess, that have those issues sometimes. And we're not sure if they're playing us or not. We think they are, but we're not exactly sure. But you see, we have the exact same routine that happens without fail every single night. I'll spare you the details, but it ends with this. We have one bedtime story, one book, we sing a song, we pray, we kiss, good night. Now, most of the nights when I go to the door, Lindsay goes to the door, there's one child in particular who will remain nameless because he, this person may be in the room. Um, this child will say, they always will say, but I'm scared, I just want you to what? Lay down with me. Now, we don't believe in being held hostage by our children, all right? So we're not going to give in to them, but we also know that there might be a, a legitimate fear that this so-called child has. So we tend to make this compromise with our child that is in this room. And, and we'll say, all right, now listen, here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to lay down with you, but what we will do is we will go downstairs and we've got this magical device that's called a monitor. And on this monitor, we can watch you. We can see you. We can see what you're doing, but also we can hear you. And what's even crazier about this monitor is if you have an emergency, we can talk back to you and you can hear us. And if it's a real big emergency, then we'll rush up there and we can be there just like that and we can be in your room. Most of the times that seems to work. The other times it gets let's just say a little more involved, okay? That's kind of where, where we leave that. As we've been studying the life of Joseph, the one point that I've tried to make over and over again is that no matter where Joseph was in his life, even during the difficult times of his life, when he was put in that pit by his brothers at 17 years old, when he was in slavery um, in Egypt, when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, when he's in prison, even where we left our story last week, if you were here, that he was forgotten by the cupbearer after he had correctly interpreted the dream, each step along the way, Joseph never doubted that God was with him. All throughout the valleys of his life, all through the pits of his life, I think the fact that, that Joseph knew that God was with him, that is what got him through not only the difficult days, but even the years that seemed from the outside world as if God had forgotten Joseph. But just as that reassurance that we give our one child of, hey, I can see you. Hey, I'm still with you. Even though you can't see me, even though you can't hear me unless I push this button, you can be assured that I am still with you. I think it's, it's that promise. It's that beyond a shadow of a doubt assurance that God was with Joseph. That is what helped him not only just survive those difficult days, but we know that Joseph actually grew in his faith. He was strengthened during those times that he was going through difficulties in his life. This morning, we're going to pick up our story in Genesis chapter 41. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to, to turn there. If not, there's a Bible in front of you. Genesis, an easy book to find, the very first book of the Bible. We're towards the end of that book. We finished chapter 40 last week. Um, and let me kind of pick up where we left off. You'll remember that Joseph was in prison for being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. While he's in prison, 
he encounters two specific people who were part of Pharaoh's guard. The first was the baker, the second was the cupbearer. Now, he gives the interpretation for both of these dreams that they each individually have during the time that they're in prison. Now, unfortunately, the baker ends up dying, he's killed, but the cupbearer is reinstated back to his job after three days. Now, Joseph only had one small, simple request of the cupbearer. Hey, I've interpreted your dream correctly. Here's the only thing that I ask of you. And then we find it in verse 14 of chapter 40. Here's the request that Joseph made. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to what? Mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. But as we read last week in Genesis chapter 40, we learn that even after the cupbearer is reinstated back into Pharaoh's house, that he actually forgets about Joseph. And it will be two full years before the cupbearer actually mentions uh, Joseph to the Pharaoh. Now, it's easy for us to think that nothing significant happened in those two years of Joseph's life while he was in prison. And last week I said, I think it had to have been two of Joseph's darkest years in prison where he thought, hey, this is the moment I'm going to be free. This is the moment that, that God has proven that he has given me this gift to interpret dreams, but he remains in prison for two years. And while we may think, oh, well, nothing happened during those two years, why would we think that? Because there's not one single verse of scripture that Moses gives us as to what happened during those two years. But we know that God was working in Joseph's life during those two years. We know that he was refining him as if pure gold to prepare him for what, as we studied this morning, will truly be the turning point in Joseph's life. So let's start with, with verse one, and we're going to see in verses one through eight that Pharaoh, in fact, has two very specific dreams. Here's the dreams that Pharaoh has, beginning in verse one. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and they stood by the other cows in the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now notice there, Pharaoh had how many dreams? Two. Have you seen a theme here as far as we've been going through Joseph's life? How many dreams did Joseph have when he was 17? Two dreams. How many dreams did he interpret when he's in prison? Two, one by the cupbearer, one by the baker. How many dreams does Pharaoh have? He has two dreams. The number two there is showing us that the dreams that are taking place, they're significant, that they are from God. Now, the dreams that, that Pharaoh has, they're very closely related. Both of them had to do with, with, with cannibalism. Both of them ended in violence. Both of the dreams, they revolve or they're built around the number seven. 
Now, Moses tells us that these dreams, that they stunned Pharaoh, they bothered him so much that when he wakes up, that he calls for the, the, the magicians and all of the wise men of Egypt to come and to explain or to, to interpret these dreams. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, was this a, a magician that was in a, a tuxedo that had a rabbit that he pulls out of the hat, has a wand? You know, that's not what we're talking about when Scripture talks about a magician in the Old Testament. Magicians were some of the most educated, most intellectual people in all of Egypt. So Pharaoh says, I'm going to call the best educated, the most intelligent people, everyone that I know, I want them to come and I want them to tell me what does these two dreams, what do these two dreams actually mean? But once again, we are seeing God's sovereign hand even in the midst of these symbolic dreams that he's given to a pagan king who does not worship the one and only God. The fact that the dreams involved symbolism is what kept the interpreters, the magicians and the wise men, from being able to correctly interpret the dream because God is working and he is moving even in the midst of a king who does not worship him. And so God, he's about to use an Israelite slave, and this Israelite slave named Joseph is about to astound all of the wisest men of Egypt. This also happened several hundred years later when the prophet, do you remember the, a guy by the name of Daniel? Daniel also was a slave from Israel, and he interprets the king of Nebuchadnezzar. See, if you look all throughout Scripture, what you will see is that God has a way of making it clear, friends, that no matter how powerful, no matter how prosperous certain nations may be, that each and every nation is still under the subject of God's sovereign control. And every nation and the planet today needs to take note of that, that God is still in control, no matter what dictators, presidents, or kings may say, even today. Then in verses 9 through 14, we see that the cupbearer, he actually remembers Joseph. It's then after we see that the cupbearer um, sees, and he's, he's kind of watching this, I think he's got a front row seat, that the magicians can't interpret it, the wise men can't interpret it. Almost it's like, remember in those cartoons and there'd be that light bulb moment and the light bulb would flicker on? I wonder, is that what's happening here? All of a sudden, hey, I remember two years ago, there was this guy when I was in prison and he was from Israel and he correctly interpreted not only my dream, but the baker's dream. So he goes and he tells Pharaoh, verse 14, this is what he says. Pharaoh, after he hears of the cupbearer reminding him about or telling him about Joseph, says, Pharaoh sent and he called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And the interesting, they call the prison the pit. And he shaved himself and he changed his clothes. He came in before Pharaoh. Now remember here, I want to set the scene here. Joseph at this time has no clue as to what is happening in Pharaoh's palace. All that Joseph knows is he's waking up another day in the pit, another day in the prison. We're not sure how long he had been there. All we know is it had been at least two years since the cupbearer had forgotten about him. But in God's divine plan before the creation of the world, we know that God had ordained that this would be the day that Pharaoh would set eyeball to eyeball with Joseph. But take note of verse 14. Joseph does two things before he goes and, and has this conversation with Pharaoh. He says he shaves and he changes his clothes. Again, not knowing how long he had been in there, but he must have been dirty. 
His clothes must have been unkempt. His beard must have been huge, right? Caleb, you would appreciate it, right? His beard that was big. But for the Hebrew, we know that they appreciated the beard. A beard was a sign of dignity. It was a sign of respect, but not so much for the Egyptians. It was the exact opposite. They couldn't stand that the beard that was there. And so because Joseph had respect before he comes before the king, he not only changes his clothes, but he shaves his beard then. Think about this contrast of what happened in this one day. Joseph wakes up in this dark, dingy prison, not sure what's going to happen. And in less than 24 hours, he is in Pharaoh's palace, standing now face to face before Pharaoh. Now, in fact, he looks more like an Egyptian than he does a Hebrew. Think about it. We know from the the end of this chapter we're going to get to in a minute that at this point that Joseph is 30 years old. He was 17 when he was sold into slavery, so he has lived almost half of his life at this moment now in Egypt. The third part, we see that Pharaoh um, describes his dreams to Joseph in verses 15 through 24. In verse 15, it says, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream that you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, listen to his answer. It is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Friends, talk about humility. Talk about integrity. This was Joseph's one moment where he is standing in the presence of the most important person in all of the world at this time. And think about what his response could have been. Think about if it were you or me. If we were standing there in front of Pharaoh, but I have to imagine the cupbearer is there as well, wouldn't we want to say, hey, listen, Pharaoh, I could have been out of here two years ago if that dummy standing next to you would have just remembered me. I'll I'll tell you what that dream means, but I'm not about to tell you what that dream means until you first, you show judgment. You punish that cupbearer because he forgot about me. But he doesn't, does he? Because we know that God has given Joseph a forgiving heart. We know that Joseph is rid of all bitterness. And I happen to believe that Joseph believed that God was in control of every single detail of his life, including the exact moment that God wanted him released from prison and standing before Pharaoh. Think about it. If the cupbearer had told um, Pharaoh about Joseph immediately upon his release, maybe Joseph wouldn't be standing here at this moment. We're not sure exactly what's going on here, but we know that clearly that God's providential hand was on Joseph during those two years that he remained in prison and he was preparing him for this exact moment where he is now standing before the most powerful man on the planet earth at this time. But I love verse 15 where Joseph is careful to point out, hey, uh, it's nothing in me. I, I can't do this. It's not about me, but I serve a God. I serve a God who can give me the gift, who can give me the ability, and I can interpret the dreams through what God has given me. The incredible scene here is the fact that the emphasis here is on God. That's quite remarkable because in Egypt, Pharaoh himself, he was considered to be a, a God, a little G God. But Joseph said, huh, 
You as a God, you don't hold a candle to the one true Jehovah God whom I serve. And you are about to find out why. So Pharaoh proceeds to tell Joseph about his two dreams. And in verses 25 through 36, we see that Joseph, he interprets the dreams. Now these dreams that God has given Joseph, it is a clear, direct communication between the one true God and this pagan um, king that he has given to him. And God is saying, this is about, this is what God is about to do upon the earth. So Joseph, then he interprets both of these dreams and says, Pharaoh, here's what your dreams mean. Both of them mean something very similar. And here's what they meant. That for seven years in Egypt, you are going to live in abundance. He's talking about the crops there. You're going to have more than you could ever want. Your whole country will. But then be careful because seven years after the seven years of plenty, there's going to be a seven-year famine. And your people, it's going to be so bad that the people won't even remember how good it was during those seven years that they had plenty. And then Joseph says, hey, I want you to make sure that you know that God has assured us this will take place. Look at verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God. There's no way this isn't going to happen. And God will shortly bring it about. Now, all throughout the interpretation of both of these dreams, Joseph is careful to bring up God and say, God is the one who is the hero of the story. And so we should be careful as with any character in the Bible that we don't make that character, that individual, the hero, but that we know God and his son, Jesus Christ, they are the hero all throughout the book of the Bible, all throughout every book of the Bible. Now, Joseph could have stopped right there. All Pharaoh asked was what? Tell me what this dream means. Tell me what both of these dreams mean. But because Joseph, he's more than just a prophet, because one of his gifts that the Lord had given him was the gift of administration, he continues and he gives some, what I call some unsolicited advice. Look at verse uh, 33. Joseph tells Pharaoh, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And right now, it's easy to be a skeptic right there and say, all right, that's it. That's where Joseph's grabbing the power play, right? That's where Joseph is saying, now I'm going to take some, some profit for myself. I'm going to say, now's the time that I can grab some power here. But nowhere in scripture does Joseph say, I am that man. I am the man. I interpreted the dream. I deserve the right to be over all the land. He doesn't have to because God reveals it to Pharaoh. And we see that, that Pharaoh eventually makes Joseph second in command of all of Egypt. You see that in verses 37 through 46. Look at verse 37. This proposal that Joseph made, it pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Don't you think we have, uh, I can think of one right here. Hey, I'm that guy. Pick me, pick me. But Joseph doesn't do it, does he? Keep reading. Verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Friends, think about this. 
Think about all the different times in which Joseph could have manipulated his position to grab that extra power. He could have done it with his brothers. He could have done it when he was in Potiphar's house. He could have done it in prison. He could have done it right here before Pharaoh, but he's not going to do that at all because he is going to wait and trust God. And the miracle thing here is is that, uh, that Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh doesn't worship the same God that Joseph worships, he notices that his God is working through him. Do you remember the same thing happened to Potiphar? Potiphar didn't worship God, but he knew that Joseph was was worshiping God and that God was blessing him as a result of him being associated with Joseph. See, God had refined Joseph during these times of trials. He had refined Joseph during these times of suffering. And now, here's the best part of the story up to this point, God is now going to use Joseph not just to save the Egyptians. He will save the Egyptians But he's also, even though he doesn't even know it yet, he is going to save his own brothers and his father, whom he dearly loves. But he had to go through that fire before he was ready for this moment. And then listen to the treatment that Joseph is given. Verse 41, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took a signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand. He clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in a second chariot. I guess that's called Egyptian Air Force Two um, that he's riding around in. That was a little better than that. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. And so now Joseph is second only to Pharaoh. Just a few years ago, he was second only to Potiphar. And friends, I know I'm repeating myself here, but I just want to make sure you're grasping this picture because so many times we read these stories in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, and we forget that these are real actual stories. They're not allegories. They are real fiction. They're real um, stories that are taking place, factual people that are, are in history. And we know, think about the contrast of what happened in this one day. Joseph wakes up in prison. He has no freedoms at all. He's scruffy and ragged. He seems as if everyone else has forgotten him. And then a few hours later, he's now wearing these royal garbs. He's got Pharaoh's ring on his finger. He's got this chariot that he's riding around in. And everyone that comes next to Pharaoh, who used to be a prisoner a few hours ago, now everyone has to bow the knee to Joseph. What an incredible 24 hours that have taken place for Joseph, right? Let's continue. We're going to end our text here with verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh, and he went through all the land of Egypt. We don't have time to go through the rest of the chapter, but let me just give you a brief summary of what happens. Joseph ends up taking an Egyptian for a wife. They end up having two sons. He gives both of those sons a Hebrew name. And then everything else that Joseph had prophesied ends up happening. There's seven years where they have more than they know what to do with. There's plenty in all of of Egypt. So Joseph makes a proposal of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh accepts it. The proposal is, hey, let's go and let's gather a fifth of all the grain and let's save it. And then after the seven years of plenty, there's seven years of famine. 
And during the seven years of famine, people come to Pharaoh and they say, hey, we need some food. And Pharaoh says, all right, listen, go to Joseph and whatever Joseph tells you to do, do it. When the time comes, Joseph opens up these storehouses of grain. And not only do the Egyptians find their way to Joseph, but eventually, I can't wait for next week, we're going to see that his brothers make it from Canaan all the way to be reunited with his brothers. So what do we take away from this story? How do we relate this story to our lives today? The first takeaway I I hope that you can easily glean from this chapter, but not only this chapter, but a, a reading of all of Joseph's life, is that, friends, this is not just luck. This isn't just chance or coincidence that in this chapter in particular that Joseph just happens to be second in command under Pharaoh. Think about this. If Joseph had simply given in to the temptation at Potiphar's house, he would have been thrown into prison. If he hadn't been thrown into prison, he wouldn't have met the cupbearer. If he hadn't met the cupbearer, he wouldn't have interpreted the dream. If he hadn't interpreted the dream, he wouldn't be standing before Pharaoh. But it goes back even further than that. If Joseph hadn't been put in the pit by his brothers, he would have been sold into slavery in Egypt. If he hadn't been sold into slavery into Egypt, he wouldn't have been in Potiphar's house. If he hadn't been in Potiphar's house, he wouldn't have been in prison. Do I need to go on? Do you see where we're going here? If there were ever an illustration of one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Romans 8, 28, this is that illustration in the Old Testament, Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, what? According to his purpose. Church family, Joseph's story is a clear indication that we serve a God who is sovereign over every event, every person, and everything that takes place. There is nothing and there is no one that can thwart God's plan and his purposes prevailing on this earth. But there's one other thing that I want you to take away from this as we close this morning. We know that God is sovereign. We've seen that God is in control and we can trust in that even during the times of the two years of of, of doubt. And here's the other thing that I want you to see. And that's that Joseph's promotion, it wasn't just for Joseph. His promotion also wasn't just for the Egyptians. But we're going to see as we continue on studying the life of Joseph that God is using Joseph literally to be a savior for his people. Now, let me be careful here. Does God care individually for Joseph? Yes, beyond a shadow of a doubt, he cares individually for Joseph. But it's so much bigger than Joseph, isn't it? God is using the character, the individual of Joseph, and there's a much broader job. There's more responsibility that's in charge of Joseph other than simply providing for himself. God is the one who gave Joseph the gift of interpreting these dreams, the gift of administration. Why? To save his people. Here's the second takeaway and the last takeaway that I hope that we will um, understand as we study this chapter of the Bible. And that is that God has given every single believer, notice that word, you have to be a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, he has given you a spiritual gift. And understand that that spiritual gift was not given to you simply for your own personal benefit so you can feel better about yourself, so that you can have personal gain. He gave you that gift, yes, for your personal, um, so that you can be used for the kingdom, but ultimately he gave you that spiritual gift for the building up of others, especially the building up of his church. Two verses to, to make this point. 
1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Fancy word for each is given a spiritual gift for the common good. Then we have 1 Peter 4, 10. As each has received a gift, listen to this. Use it how? How are we to use our gift? To serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Friends, if each and every one of us, those who are following Jesus, if we would make it our priority in life to use whatever gift that he has given us to glorify God, not trying to to differ between the other person's gift, not trying to downgrade someone else's gift, not trying to say, well, yours is better than mine or mine's better than yours. What we will discover is that our different gifts that God has given us, they should draw us together, not apart. Why? Because we learn that we depend on each other. God is is a pretty smart God, right? He gave each and every one of us at First Baptist different gifts, different passions, so that when we come together, watch what happens when we serve together for the common good of his church. The Holy Spirit desires to produce love in our hearts. And it's his love that Paul says binds everything together in perfect, listen to this last word, harmony in perfect harmony so i'll close with this this is my most sincere prayer for our church family at this time and it's that each and every one of us individually that we would use our spiritual gifts for the greater good That during our prayer time this week, we would go before the Lord and first ask the Lord, what is it that you have gifted me with? A gift is different from a talent. What's the spiritual gift? If you're a believer, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he has given you a spiritual gift. Would you this week go before the Lord and say, what is my gift? And once I know what my gift is, how can I use it for the greater good? We just saw it demonstrated in the life of Joseph. And church family, when we do that, when we individually come before the Lord with open hands and say, how can I use my spiritual gift that you've given me? I didn't do anything to deserve it for the greater good. We will see an incredible picture of what that last word I read in that verse, harmony. We've talked a lot about unity as a church and we want unity. We don't want uniformity. A church with this varying of ages, of where we live, of our backgrounds, we're not all going to be the same, and that's a good thing. But we want to live in harmony with one another, meaning that we're going to use our gifts and we are going to depend upon one another. And when we do that, watch how the love of Christ will overflow into our community, into our families, into our church, because we are looking not to our own interest, but how we can be a blessing and used by God for the greater good. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the picture of Joseph. We thank you for his life, for the example of following you, not just when he had all the answers, but even when he wasn't sure what the next day was going to hold. He was dependent upon you. Would we have that same faith? That we say, God, we are going to obey no matter what the results may be, no matter what tomorrow holds, we are going to obey you. 
not knowing when that moment is going to come that during the time of that refining, during that time of, of the testing that you have been preparing us for something that's in front of us. We have no idea when that moment may happen, but we simply want to be found faithful. So would you give each and every one of us a desire to follow you? And Lord, I pray that if there is someone here today that has never fully trusted you, maybe they've felt like, well, coming to church and giving an offering, reading my Bible, that makes me a follower of Jesus, but they've never surrendered their life to you. That today would be the day that they, they say, I know there's nothing in me that is worthy or deserving of a relationship with you. But they would accept the gift of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, even though he did not deserve it, so that we might receive the righteousness of Christ. Thank you that our sin was placed upon him so that we might be completely forgiven and redeemed, purchased back. Would we live in that victory? For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.